meeting is being recorded. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Love Fruit Podcast. Today, our guest is John Coleman. And John, Col- John Coleman is originally from England. He now lives in Thailand. He's been 30 years plus on a vegan diet. He's been into the raw foods and fruit-based diet about 30 years. Uh, sorry, 20 years of that time. He is the uh, author of a book called We Are omnivores and has a, a website and a project ongoing project called we are herbivores you can find out more about that at weareherbivores.com with the intention of putting together a, a documentary about that information his um information is books if you've read the 81010 diet by doug graham he's actually mentioned or referenced in that and um john also had a, a an audio program uh, that, that you can listen to as well so John, that's a little quick summary of you from what I know about you, but would you like to share a little bit about yourself as an introduction? Sure, yeah, I'll give you a potted history of me. Um, So uh, I'm a a child of the late 60s, basically. Um, I noticed when I was growing up, uh, my mum was quite big time into meat eating, uh, into dairy. Um, I actually didn't enjoy meat particularly. Uh, she liked to prepare meats, not so much in the highly processed way that, you know, like everything's hidden, you know, like pork chops and things were and, and liver, uh, you know, just chucked on the plate was pretty standard. Um, I found the smell, the taste and the, che- the texture of, of meat pretty unpleasant, to be honest. I didn't like the smell of the cooking and all of that. Um, so it kind of, I, I guess that set me out on the path of being a bit more inquiring about things. Um, then, uh, I one one day I went to, um, uh, university and I bumped into a vegan there. Um, he didn't say he was a vegan or anything. He wasn't your stereotype vegan that tells you he's vegan at the first meeting. Um, Yeah. Uh, so that that's a bit of a myth, I think. This yeah. guy was very, very quiet on the quiet about it. He was kind of, uh, you know, uh, a sort of a, a side bow kind of vegan, not not in your face, uh, subtle. Um, and he said, "Why are you why are you getting your lunch at McDonald's? There's a ve- there's a veggies um, stall next door. They sell burgers. They're cheaper. Um, oh, and by the way, they're meat free." So I thought, oh, okay, um, I'm not a huge fan of meat. I'll take a look into this. So I found the veggies uh, trailer, and they were indeed selling completely vegan burgers and, and hot dogs, although, of course, they were called not dogs. Um, and I actually really enjoyed them. I was like, hey, actually, this plant food seems to be a lot more pleasant than the Big Mac. And I know that's not saying much because, you know, Big Macs are pretty hideous at the end of the day, even if you like meat. Um, but anyway, that's the start of the vegan journey. Um, and later on, I, I found a book um, called Why, what was it called? Why You Don't Need Meat. And that was by Peter Cox. And um, I found it at one of these sort of health, so-called health food stores. Um, I saw it outside. I picked it up, um, had a read of that. And I ah, OK, there's more to it. There's more to it than just, oh, actually, you know, this tastes good, that tastes good. Um, there's a health impact involved as well. Uh, and of course, the other thing I'd seen at the veggies burger stall was a big, you know, almost life-size picture of a dead cow hung and, and gutted. Um, and that really connected the ethical side of it. And I thought, actually, I, I don't really want to have blood on my hands. 
with every meal. Um, ethic, so I had the, I had the thing together by then, you know, ethically and health-wise. I thought, yeah, actually, I'm going to do the vegan thing. So I mean, that went on for a few years, and then I guess sometime around 1992 to 94, something like that. Um, I found a group on the internet and, you know, back in the day now, we're, we're before Twitter and Facebook and all of that stuff, um, you had these email lists. So you, you sent your email address to this list server and the list server would take your email address and then anyone who sent a message to that list server's email box, everybody got a copy. So it was like a bit like a, 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 a chat room, but uh, not in real time. You know, you had to wait for the mail to come. And on there, I bumped into this chap called uh, Laurie Forty, uh, also known as Lawrence J Forty, or AKA Lofo. And he was a chemical engineer um, and a sort of hippie guy, I guess. I don't know whether he'd like me to call him that, but that's how most people would probably see him. Uh, but he dropped out of the corporate world and was helping people to recover their health. So. He ran, for a while, he ran this raw food recovery uh, place in Boston. Now, this is back in the 70s, by the way, when I was a child. Um, so he would take obese people and he would just fill his his uh, uh, refrigerator up with fruit and vegetables. And he'd say, look, stay with me a few weeks. Eat as much fruit and veg as you like. Um, and, of course, people would do this um, and their weight would, would, would plummet. Um, and they'd start to feel really healthy. So, and that's where I learned a bit more about the raw food kind of thing. And one of the things he enlightened me about was the Anne Wigmore Institute there. I forget what, exactly what it's called, but he said he, he was involved in that as well. He went along, he saw everybody there was gaunt and, and weak. Um, and of course, they're just trying to eat vegetables and vegetable matter. Um, and that got Laurie thinking about that. Ah, there's something wrong here you know if this is the right diet they should be thriving so this led to the idea well actually of course we're primates and and we're like chimpanzees and chimpanzees eat a lot of fruit and fruit is a source of calories and that's the missing ingredient from this uh and wigmore diet so that's that's how Laurie came to the thing well basically we're frugivores uh, like chimpanzees so i picked up on this idea um, and there came, I, I had a health crisis probably around 1995. I think I had shingles. Mm -hmm. um, let's say my lifestyle wasn't the most respected for my health at the time, even though I was vegan. Um, and that led me to think a bit about actually, I need to make some changes here. I had the info from, from Lofo. Um, so I started reading and studying about natural hygiene at this time, and, and I read a lot of Shelton's work. Um, and I started to incorporate a lot of raw food in my diet. I stopped eating refined and processed foods uh, almost overnight. So I'm just eating like steamed vegetables, uh, no salt. Um, so that went on, I think, for a year or two. Um, and I, my health improved massively on this, on this what you might call hygienic diet. Sure. Then I bumped into another book called Nature's First Law which is probably kind of notorious in raw food circles. I don't know whether it still is, but it was in the day. Um, it's basically it was plagiarized work of Hovenessian. So I, then I read Hovenessian's book. But anyway, upon reading Nature's First Law, 
and I met all the guys involved as well, the, the, the three uh, Nature's First Law guys. I think I met, or at least I met two of them in London. Um, and they came over and did a few talks and things. I think probably back in the 90s, uh, we're going back to again. But anyway, that inspired me to go completely raw. Um, so I, I transitioned and went completely raw very quickly. Um, at some point, again, in just after mid-90s, late 90s. And I pretty much stuck to the raw food diet for about six years. Um, so I'm, I'm talking about more than 90% of my food was raw. Um, I think at one point for around two years, I was almost completely fruitaire and a little bit of salad. Um, and yeah, I think, I think my, my weakness was olives. So I'd sometimes buy pickled <laughs> olives or something like that. I did actually want to have some amount of something salty in the diet. And, um, you know, I don't know whether that was addiction. I don't think it was. I think perhaps there is genuinely a need for saltiness uh, or a minimum amount of salt, or it's possible to be deficient eating vegetation. I, mean, I haven't really got to the bottom of that one, but it's very common for herbivores to be attracted to salt licks. So, you know, hygiene says no salt, but maybe there's a bit more to the story than that. Uh, I haven't got to the bottom of it. But anyway, that seemed to suit me. Um, but I noticed after a few years, my legs started to, I used to get pains in my legs. Um, so I got, I did a heel scan and found out that I had osteopenia, which is low bone density. So the fruit diet wasn't working uh, well for me. There wasn't enough of the bulk minerals. Um, so I started taking supplements and I started to expand my diet a bit more and focus on making sure I got all the nutrients I needed. Um, and that's pretty much where I am today, um, although I'm not so strict on the all raw. Um, I, I mean, I still did a few years all raw, uh, but I tend to, it tends to be who I'm in relationship with and where I'm living and so on and so forth. But as you might gather, Thailand's a great place for being a raw foodist. Um, and the vegetable matter here is, is amazing. I've, I've learned about so many new vegetables and herbs that are consumed and consumed raw in, in Thailand traditionally as well. Um, so there's a lot, I, I've come a bit further away from the idea that we're just frugivores and fruit eaters. That's really great, so, John. Thank, thank you for all that. Yeah, that's the pretty history. <laughs> yeah, and one of the names that came up there, we'll go into a bit of that more, but Laurie Forty, I've, said, I've seen the name around on a few websites but didn't really know that much about him. So that's, that's really, is he someone you're still in touch with? Is he still around or? I believe he's deceased. He must be in his seventies or eighties by now. Um, my relationship with him broke down early 2000s, something like that. I thought he was a bit too dogmatic because I started studying evolutionary theory um, and things, things got a bit complicated from, from that point on in the relationship because he rejected evolutionary theory um and i can't i kind of saw it as you you have to well you can't really understand biology without evolutionary theory um but but yeah that we got into a bit of a tussle around that uh, which a bit silly really but it was annoying at the time um but he was very influential for me his background was scientific he, he was a chemical engineer um so he introduced me to the idea that well of course nutrition is quantitative quantitative so you have to get enough of you know the different kinds of nutrients 
to to uh, nourish your body. I mean, it's obvious, um, but a lot of people don't think very quantitatively about nutrition. Um, and and Hovenessian was one of these. He he sort of said, well, all raw foods have everything you need in them, um, and maybe that's true to some extent. But actually, the amounts really do matter. So you you have to have enough minerals, you know, at the end of the day to support your mineral requirements. And you, you can't just count on mangoes or apples to do it for you. And I actually saw quite a few people fail on raw diets at the time and get into chronic malnutrition and end up in hospital on the raw food scene. Uh, I think because they were influenced by Hovenessian and like every food's got everything you need in it. And it's, it's too naive. Okay. Okay. So um, when you first initially went vegan earlier on in your life and when you changed, did you notice improvements to your health and to your life at that point? Uh, absolutely. My health did improve when I transitioned onto the vegan diet. Uh, I think I would say I would get less colds. Mm -hmm. um, that was the one thing I noticed. Um, but I was never one for much for colds, but I would always get a lot of catarrh or, you know, phlegm when I got colds, loads of it, copious amounts of, of snot and <laughs> phlegm. It was hideous. Um, but when I went vegan, the colds got much milder and less frequent. So, and the other, the other big thing I noticed was body odors. So uh, fecal odor, uh, uh, the odor of flatus or gas, um, all, all went down very substantially. Um, there's actually been some interesting work done on that in a, in a study, which I cite on my website. And was there further improvements going raw or any changes you noticed there? Yeah. So the vegan thing, I would say on a scale to 10 was like one or two in terms of the health improvement. And when I went uh, to the high war, uh, sort of what you might call frugivore diet, uh, the health change was absolutely night and day. So within a few weeks, I had lost quite a bit more weight, um, but my energy level had just skyrocketed. Um, I think I dropped an hour's sleep, something like that. Um, I could sleep a lot less. Um, and my, my bedtimes were very consistent, like I would be tired at 10.30 and I would wake up when the birds start making a noise. And it was almost like a switch to waking up. It was like I would just wake up, I would feel fully refreshed and, and straight away ready to do stuff. Um, it was it was really almost shocking. And I was like, oh, maybe my body's kind of been poisoned or it's been like it's been asleep all of my life. Wow. And then I, I, start, I start doing this thing in my, I guess I was in my 20s or possibly early 30s at the time. I figure that out. Yeah, maybe late 20s. Um, so it's like night and day. So I, I purchased a mountain bike. I started doing cross-country running. I mean, I just had so much energy, I couldn't sit down. Wow. I just wanted to do stuff. You know, I thought, oh, I, I want to do something. I want to move. Um, I also got into the dance music scene um, because I like moving my body. So everything just became about movement. I cycled to work. Uh, it was, I think it was a two hour cycle to and fro from work at the time. So I would cycle to and fro work three times a week. Um, so I'm, you know, putting on quite a few miles cycling and it was all, all up and downhill as well, the cycling trip. 
Um, so I got a mountain bike and started doing a lot of mountain biking at the weekend as well. I loved cross country. The, the, the cross country was quite interesting because I would, maybe I'd run for a few kilometers at like a, a regular pace and then I'd get a jolt of energy and I would just sprint uh, for a few hundred meters and then I'd bring it down. So I would do something like that. Um, so I was very fit as well. Uh, I took part in a few medical studies at that time too, a couple of them. Uh, one of them, they did sort of MRIs on my body. Um, they wanted to know about body fat composition and they were comparing vegans, I think, and vegetarians and, and omnivores um, to see about body fat. And uh, it was very interesting. And I think I was weighing about 65 and a half kilos at the time. So I was very lean. Um, and the doctor said, oh, you like really healthy. Um, and uh, it was, you know, it was positive feedback. Great. Um, so you, you, we, we talked about, you talked a little bit about the, the books you read that kind of got you changing your diet and got you more into the raw foods and stuff. You, you mentioned Hovindessian and, and Shelton and stuff. Could you give a bit of a summary of some of the things you read and maybe what you got out of them or maybe even what you saw as mistake as mistakes about them looking back? Right. So, um, Shelton and natural hygiene, I think considering the time they were written, are uh, almost perfectly spot on in the thinking. Um, possibly, I would say some of the defects are similar to Hovenessian's in the idea that sort of nature is perfect or is, or is some kind of perfect state. I don't know whether you really have that in hygiene, but some hygienists will say don't take supplements. Mm -hmm. uh, I will take vitamin B12, for example. Um, I do take some others uh, because I, you see, the, the food we're eating is not natural. It, it's, it's, uh, it's been bred, um, it's been grown under artificial conditions, not, it's not out in the wild. And even if it were out in the wild, soil, con soil conditions can vary from one place to another. Um, and plants can actually thrive in quite sparse, minerally sparse conditions and produce rather poor, minerally poor vegetation that is not sufficient really for our optimal health. So I think, I think that and an understanding of, of uh, evolutionary biology uh, was some of the missing ingredients of Shelton's works. Um, and there's, you know, there's a few little things here and there, like I say about supplements and B12 and stuff like that. But I think, you know, you, those are just tweaks. Uh, they're very important tweaks. But overall, the thinking, I think, was, was pretty much spot on. Um, Hovenessian is very similar. Uh, the thinking is, is, is pretty good. Um, but, you know, the, the details are important. And I, I think maybe those details were missing at the time. Um, I mean, it's like TC Fry. The, the guy, I think, was a boxer, basically, um, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so a lot of these people didn't have a scientific background right. and they, and it's the same with, um, who's the other guy, the mucus guy, um, Arnold Errett. Yeah. Errett is another, he may have been the boxer actually. I could be getting them mixed up. Uh, yeah, Errett was the boxer, I think uh, I'm getting a bit mixed up here, but, but similar to him, you know, these people came and like me, they experimented and then they came up with their own ideas and theories to explain. 
um, and they weren't necessarily scientifically robust. Um, and I thought, well, okay, um, I can read some science books. So I got a, I started reading a whole bunch of science books in order to to kickstart this project to take this idea of are we omnivores a bit further. And I thought that it was necessary necessary to bring that discipline to the raw food movement as well. So I started producing uh, tapes and things to make it rigorous. Sure, and and um, something you mentioned as well, the Nature's First Law, the book from David Wolf, I think David Wolf, Stephen Arlen, and R. C. Dini, the, the three guys. And as you were saying, infamously. Uh, um, kind of plagiarized the Hovenesian book, but they yeah. were obviously a big part of raw foods, pr promoting the raw foods idea, I suppose, going back to the 90s. And you mentioned yeah. talks and stuff. And 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 in all this time, were you in the UK? And was there a raw food scene? Was there a vegan scene? What was, what was going on? Were there events happening? Could you meet other people who were interested in the same ideas? Sure, yeah, there was quite a thriving community at the time. Uh, I used to go to a fairly regular raw food meetup in London. I can't remember exactly where it was. It's run by a chap called Grant. Um, and there would be a few people who come along there and people prepare and share food. Um, yeah, the Nature's First Law came over and, and did some talks, um, which really, I think, helped to popularize the idea a bit more in the UK. Um, I think at that time, Shazzy, uh, you maybe may have heard of her. Sure. Um, she was she kicked off. She had her, her own kind of angle on raw food. Um, so I, I, she used to run uh, some meetings and things as well and events. I'd go to those. Um, and there was another lady as well. I'm trying to remember. Her name was Karen Nola, I believe. I'm still in touch with her. Uh, or still, I think, see her on Facebook. Uh, she started like a whole coaching thing. Um, so they were they were the two other personalities I knew about who were kind of uh, big in the UK at the time. I ran a few talks and, and made uh, I think maybe a couple of tapes. Uh, it's back in the I think at the time it was recorded tapes or, or maybe even CDs that I made at the time as well. Um, so sometimes uh, I'd hold my own events or I'd, I'd turn up at other people's events and do a talk about something or other related to. The nutrition excellent excellent um so did you ever meet ann osborne back then in the uk or tony wright was he around uh yes i met tony wright at an event in cornwall i believe uh probably when my middle son was about one year year old um, so i think we're talking about 2006 something like that um uh, yeah, there was a raw food festival in Cornwall. I bumped into him there and, and heard his his story. Um, I don't really attach any scientific credibility to it. I <laughs> don't believe it personally. Um, Anne Osborne, yeah, I'm pretty sure I met her at some events as well, but maybe only your your events. I right, can't I see, remember I see. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so just... Since we mentioned Tony Wright, so he has the idea about um, left in the dark, so the the left hand side of the brain, or the right, I can't remember which side, but one part is kind of in control and 
he sees that as being almost a damaged side of the brain because of moving away from the right diet and environment and that we have this kind of inner genius that has been sort of repressed and um yeah i i i've really enjoyed his ideas at times and then it, it comes across a little bit sort of um i don't think it's a great explanation for why the world's going like like his his talk often started off with look how crazy the world is isn't it obvious we're all crazy you know like that was sort of like we're all crazy aren't we you know and i thought not really like there are reasons for things happening like it's not all just by yeah you know yeah i think these kind of ideas are again similar to the ones you see in natural hygiene or in hovenessian there's an element of the paradisical in mm. them yeah. like things yeah. things are actually supposed to be um you know it's supposed to be nice basically yeah um, and of course, there's no notion of this in in biological science. Um, we're we're adapted to survive in certain conditions, and game theory will explain why some people do this and some people yeah. do that. It's really, um, you know, it's interesting. There is a very strong appeal of of people again to of of human beings in general. Is this either? You call it appeal to nature as part of it, or or like that's one thing, but also this kind of, like you're saying, like this appeal to like a paradise, a state of, and a lot of the religious texts, obviously, famously, the Garden of Eden talks like there was a time when yeah. everything was perfect and everything was, and we lived in harmony and pristine nature, yeah, yeah, and I think the Greeks had stories about that, you know, I think the Hindu stories have things about you know so we have a real appeal in us to that it's a, it's a real do you have any idea why why do you think that is yeah it's an oddity isn't it I, I, it's what I think it's worth mentioning I think the Gnostic Christians as well they had kind of the other view that the physical world was a wretched and defiled place <laughs> um, and we're, we're here to like almost as you know it's a spiritual test we're given yeah. all this horror. We're given all these horrors of the material world, and how we respond to them. You know, if if we do the good godly stuff, right. then we get to the to the perfected realm after after we're deceased, of course. Sure. Um, if we sure. don't, you know, if we're being good children. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it crops up all over the place, um, and in Buddh Buddhism as well. Uh, is more like well actually yeah our experiences we're, we're sort of we're born in this mud um, and then if we if we do the enlightened thing then we we rise up and we come yeah. become a sort of more like a super being so yeah it's all over the place this idea um, but I guess none of us particularly that for me the bottom line is sort of uh, none of us really like particularly grappling with nature um, it looks it looks nice, but when you get into the details, it's pretty hideous. Um, yeah, and, and it's scary. And it's funny, like I, when, when a lot of times when people get into fruit fruitarianism, rapids, they they really start to, especially well, men and women, but I've seen it with a lot of young guys. Like they want to almost try and embrace this going back to nature thing. They want to live in a tree or something, mm. grow their beard long, you know, all these things and absolutely it could be dangerous 
like some people have put themselves in real danger and I find it almost ironic but I would imagine that, that like a, a bunch of the primates that are like us live in near the Congo or around the Congo kind of area of Africa I believe like bonobos yes. Japanese. and yeah I think the Congo is like a really inhospitable place <laughs> like ironically mm. for us like it's a really difficult country to live in and and like the various parasites and stuff there is really difficult Absolutely. to deal with I've heard yeah well, Lawrence Forty actually moved to Hawaii, I think it was the Big Island, to start off an intentional raw food commune. Um, so he sat up there and got some other people over. Most of the other people he got over, a lot of them were really dysfunctional people. Uh, you know, they had personality disorders. Um, and eventually he contracted a couple of tropical diseases. Uh, I think it was leptospirosis and rat lung disease. Wow. Um, and exactly for the reasons you suggest, there are parasites all over the place. Um, and, you know, stuff is pooping on your food. <laughs> if you don't wash it or cook it, uh, you get the parasites. Um, and it was to the point, he got to the point where he couldn't get out of bed. And he was, I think, doubly incontinent. Um, and by this time, he couldn't get money out of the bank. Um, he was actually stuck on the island, uh, pretty much in bed and couldn't do a whole lot of anything. And he was obviously yeah. reliant on other people to support him. Um, eventually, he figured out a way, I think, to, to get the money and get back to the USA. Um, but, you know, cooking and, and washing things, um, it, it isn't 100% stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it can it can work out for the better compared to what nature might have to offer us. Yeah, and this is, I mean, obviously, if you're not partly if you're not born into that, I mean, the the, the same argument with like when white people or Europeans went over to other places and brought their diseases and wiped out huge populations of people. Yes, passing on diseases like they were they were used to it or they were born into it but other people um weren't and so they didn't have the immunity i suppose but um i just think that it's, i've never heard that story but that's really interesting to me and the amount of times i've heard of things of people going somewhere to start intentional communities and there was there was there's ones in africa that i've heard about at least one where but I've heard a number of bad stories about these things. And, and the thing you said is absolutely right. You've, you've got to ask yourself, who are the people that you're going to attract? Especially if it's like, hey, come come for free and work on this land and let's all eat fruit together. It's like, hmm. you are going to attract some people who are kind of running away from society and struggling to fit in. And there might be reasons for that. And um, uh, yeah, and, and, and I've, I've seen people... As you're saying with the parasites thing, um, and but they may contract something like that and refuse to go to hospital because of yep. this, like, you know, anti-medical thing that, that a lot. Of oh yeah, call. I can tell you another story. When I was staying in Gopanan, um, there's a lot of communities there, uh, intentional community type activity there. I bumped into a guy called Colin. Uh, actually, it became a dear friend. And we, we did quite a few things together. 
Um, lovely, lovely guy, uh, vegan for, for a long time. Also ran a healing uh, retreat uh, in the USA, um, very successfully. Um, he moved to Gopanan uh, for sort of his retirement, I guess. Um, he was set up there. He did some talks and things that I went to. Um, and I'm not sure exactly what was wrong with him. I don't know whether it was prostate cancer or something like that, but there was something wrong with his uh, urinary tract um, system, whatever. Um, he wouldn't go to the doctors or have medical intervention at all. And uh, he'd obviously had this problem for a while, and of course, it eventually it killed him. Um, and it was, you know, really sad and shocking. Um, wow. Well, you know, sad to, sad to lose a friend uh, yeah. that I'd become very close to. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know. Should he have got, got some antibiotics and a surgery or something? Um, I think possibly he would have been better off. But, you know, also you don't want to be naive about the medical system and the financial, particularly in Thailand, the financial conflict that's there and the absence of knowledge of how to be healthy as well. I mean, there are things to take into consideration, um, but I think the body can get to the point where it's beyond its natural capability to fix itself. Um, and then I think surgery and drugs might offer a survival opportunity that uh, you don't want to overlook sure, um, sure but again you know you don't want to be naive about it as well yeah yeah um well going back to uh so you uh, at what point did you leave the uk and what made you do that right yeah so as a transitional process so i was living with uh, um, a woman called sophie at the time uh, with whom i had my youngest child um, and there's, there's a whole horrible story that goes along with this relationship, which I don't, don't really want to in, include in this presentation. Sure, for we, sure, we yeah. Yeah, we could go into it, but I don't I think it's very tangential. But anyway, we moved, we started exploring coming and staying in, in Thailand. So I'd stopped working full time so I could help uh, raise our son. So we'd come to Thailand on and off. Um, and we did this a, a couple of times. So we would stay six months in the UK, six months in Thailand. And I think there were two, two big frustrations driving it. The, the main ones were the difficulty finding properties to live in in the UK, uh, the price of property, uh, the effort you had to get go through to just to rent somewhere to stay. Um, so the property market to grapple with. So we started living in a, in a uh, converted truck um, a living vehicle, as they say, um, that that got rid of that problem pretty much. Uh, it gave us a whole bunch of other problems uh, on top, though. Um, and the other one, of course, is the weather. We we didn't really like the winter. Um, it was unpleasant, particularly yeah. when we started with the living vehicle. Uh, so we've come to Thailand and stayed for six months. Um, we bumped into. I think the first time we came over was just for a few weeks. Um, and we stayed at the Raw Food Winter with a guy called Connor. He organized it. Um, so that was like a completely raw food event uh, that was was uh, run in Chiang Mai. So that was our first visit. Um, we met a lot of other raw food folks there and other people dabbling with the with the uh, lifestyle. Um, I think yeah, I, was, I did some I was talks. There. I was there as well. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. That's what, that's what I made. Uh, I think. Very much. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think that was the first time. 
I don't. I think there was a second one. I'm not sure yeah, if it came yeah. to that one. I, I went yeah. twice, but um, maybe I only saw you one time there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The first one I think was pretty golden in terms of meeting people. Uh, the second time was I think more people, but it was a bit more, a bit more uh, fractured. Uh, but yeah, it was good, good, good days. Um, yeah, so we started doing that. Then I broke up with Sophie. Um, there's a whole story about that, which you can you can probably find on on the internet if you want to. But uh, it ended tragically with her dead. Um, nothing exactly to do with me. Uh, it was it was her new boyfriend. Anyway, won't go into that too much. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that tragedy happened. Um, but just before that, I had managed to find uh, permanent work in Thailand because um, I'd been back over and staying in the I was still left in the UK after I broke up with Sophie. Um, and so uh, I came over to Thailand in 2017. And I've pretty much been living here solidly since then. Um, I've settled down with uh, a Thai lady. So I have a, I have a, a Thai girlfriend now. Um, she's she's an excellent uh, sort of stepmother figure for my younger son as well. Um, so that's that's where we're at, and uh, yeah, we're we're vegan still, of course. Um, and and Shay's been ra raised vegan, and most of his first years of life he was 100% raw as well, or pretty much you know very high raw. Um, I think yeah, he 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 really liked broccoli. And, and oranges when he was a baby. Uh, so when he started eating, uh, we did used to um, blanch the broccoli though. So I don't know whether that counts as not really 100% raw, um, but it's a little bit tough for a for sure. a, a baby. Um, so that was that was his sort of first food experience. Um, he he loved broccoli when he was a baby, but difficult to get him to eat it now. Sure, sure, sure. Excellent. I mean, yeah. Uh, you also have a connection with Doug Graham. I know that you've known him for a long time, and I think prior to the 801010 book coming out, and you are referenced in that and so on. What's yeah. your relationship with Doug? Where, where does that go back to? When did you meet him? Yeah, that that's uh, an interesting question. For I think the first time I actually, well, I actually met, met Rosie before Doug. So this goes back, I think, to the 90s. Mm -hmm. She was doing raw food events and activities at the time as well. Um, I don't think, she, yeah, she was pretty popular. I don't, maybe not as, in the limelight as much as Shazzy and Karen, um, but she was involved. Uh, so I met up with her sometime to talk about um, food and nutrition because I thought she was very interesting. And she kind of got me, I think, a bit more deeply involved in um, in, in the natural hygiene stuff. Uh, Dougie, I guess I bumped into soon afterwards. Um, I think he started going out with Wazzy sometime after I met her. Um, and I I'm not sure, I, I guess they were married not too long after them. Um, and we went to one of um, Doug's events. Uh, so when I say we, I mean uh, myself and Sophie, because I was with her at the time. Uh, so we went to one of those events. Um, that was in 2008, I believe. They may have seen Doug talking somewhere before then. I, I can't recall. But uh, yeah, it was it was the sort of uh, 2007-2008 era. So I went to one of Doug's events. Um, I think I was already familiar with Doug though before then. 
Um, but uh, yeah, that's where also, I, of course, I started to hear a bit more about natural hygiene at that time. Uh, got quite, well, Sophie and I got good friends with, with Doug and, and, and Rosie. Um, and uh, we'd, we'd go to their house sometimes. Um, they were living in Stoynton, I think, at the time. They, they, then they moved somewhere else. Um, so it was nice to go and visit because it's a very beautiful area of, of England. Um, and yeah, if you get a spare day out or something and you want to go to the countryside, uh, beautiful areas to go around, around Poolborough and Stoynton, uh, walking, cycling and so forth. I actually lived with Sophie uh, there for a few years, not far from Doug and Rosie. Um, we were fully raw, I think, or pretty much, you know, fully raw most of the time there. Um, so, yeah, we would go around. Uh, we weren't exactly neighbours. They were in the next village. But, uh, you know, we could we could cycle over and uh, pay a visit. Uh, no problem. Excellent. Excellent. And uh, yeah. What do you think about his books and his information? Yeah, the 801010 makes a lot of sense. Uh, I read his book when it came out. Um, again, I, I, I'd probably add something around supplements to, to the advice or, or what you might call the, the, the lifestyle. Um, but that was pretty much the lifestyle I was living at the time and, and what I'd arrived at um, through understanding of what Laurie had to say. Um, I think the thing that Doug brought that was a bit more, it was important, was a bit more consciousness of eating greens and adequate uh, vegetation um, because, you know, some people try and be fruitarian and, and I did that and you can get it a bit short on minerals. And I, I think uh, Doug really emphasizes the, the vegetation side of things and that's very important. Um, so I, I would say if, if you were to look at any of the raw food literature and, and lifestyle sort of uh, guidance around, around it, I would say look at the 801010. It's it's about the best you can you can get. Let's let's talk a little bit about the situation you're talking about with the osteopenia, and yeah, what exactly happened there? What were you eating at the time? What was the symptoms, and how did you find out, and all that stuff? And then how did you yes. treat that, so to speak? Yeah. So I was eating an almost exclusively fruit diet at the time. Um, I would eat some salad. But if you look at the 80-10-10, it's actually quite demanding. Uh, I, I can't remember whether it's one or two pounds of greens, but you're supposed to eat a lot of greens on that diet. Um, and when we went round to, to Dougie's house, you know, the, you'd have a salad bowl and it would be colossal. Um, and it was usually have loads of spinach in it, lettuce and so on and so forth. Um, you know, the dark green leafy vegetable matter. Um, and that's really important. I wasn't doing that. I was eating a lot of apples, a lot of mangoes, grapes, bananas, um, and berries as well. Um, so that was the, the mainstay of my diet was, was fruit. Um, as I say, I did have kind of have this thing for, um, for uh, pickled olives and the, the wanting something sort of a bit salty. Sure, sure. But other than that, I was pretty much, I would say like, 99% by volume or weight of the food that I was eating was fruit. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, I stayed well doing that for, I guess, a couple of years or nearly two years. Um, but my, my weight 
started to go down until I hit sort of 65.5, like I say, and I, I stopped at that. Um, but I, I noticed I began to get, get these pains, like aches in my legs, and they really be start to become quite painful. Mm -hmm. um, so I checked this out. Um, you know, I Googled it to try and find out, self-diagnose, well, what might be the problem here? And uh, they suggested low bone density. Mineral deficiency was, was what I came up with as the sort of the, the diagnosis, if you like. So I took myself to one of those mobile medical test centers. You know, they drive them around on vans and they'll offer you a whole slew of different medical tests. Usually, I think about four, five, six, maybe seven tests. So, you know, they'll do your cholesterol and all of that, uh, blood pressure and blah, blah, blah. Um, and I got my heel prick, not heel prick, heel, heel something or other done. But basically they put a um, sound, sound energy through the bone in your heel, your heel bone, and using, using the, the uh, readings from that, they can tell what your bone density is. And I had a bone density, it wasn't at osteoporosis, it was the level before that. So my body obviously wasn't getting enough minerals and they gave me a bunch of dietary advice. Um, so I started, um, I didn't take calcium supplements exactly. I started using fortified orange juice. So at the time you could go into, I think Sainsbury's and you could get this uh, orange juice and it was fortified with calcium. It had a bit of extra calcium added to it. And it was a very highly absorbable form of calcium. Um, I actually, I actually drank too much of that stuff and it started making my muscles, um, tense because uh, my body had got so used to being in calcium depletion, the sudden flush of, of calcium rich diet sort of blew my muscles away. They could, they, my body wasn't used to having so much calcium and it was affecting the electrolyte balance in my, my leg muscles. So they got very stiff. So I had to take it a bit more gradually. Uh, but anyway, my, my bone density fully recovered. Um, I don't think it took too long. I, you know, I went back to the same mobile place and did the scan thing again, and, and I recovered. It was like a mobile testing place. Yeah, yeah. So sometimes you'll outside the supermarkets, they would, right. they would stop. And of course, they're, they're, people would bump into and they go along. And usually what they're looking for is to, to spot people with high blood pressure because everyone, yeah. you know, everyone's dying of heart disease or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And they're trying to help, they're trying to help people to pick that up and, and uh, change their diet basically to, or, you know, get on medication to, to deal with the, these sort of common uh, ailments that people have on the, the standard Western diet. And did they mention vitamin D? Was that something you had to supplement as well or check? as a result of that? I can't remember. Yeah, I think they did mention that as well. Uh, I was taking no supplements during this period, so I was being the, the good hygienist. Um, I was, wasn't taking B12, wasn't taking vitamin D, none of that. So I changed, and uh, yes, I did start using vitamin D as well, and I still take vitamin D to this day too. Oh, wow, even uh, Sorry. Well, the ironic thing in Thailand. Yeah. So the ironic thing in Thailand is um, that a lot of people can be vitamin D deficient here uh, for two reasons. One, Thais have darker skin, uh, as you might expect. Um, so they don't absorb the sun so well, which, of course, is, is 
kind of part of the point of having darker skin. Um, but also uh, because it's so hot and you tend to get burned when you go outside, if you're not very careful, uh, most people don't spend long outdoors. Uh, I had a similar problem when I went to New Zealand. Um, you could literally only stay out in the sun for about five minutes and your skin would burn. Um, so most people are very careful about the sun. Of course, there's this whole thing of avoiding skin cancer and the fear that the sun's going to give you cancer. Um, yeah, okay, if you do it a lot and too much, it's bad for you. Um, so there is a right amount of sun to get, um, but whether you're getting it and, and achieving the optimal amount um, is kind of a formula that's a bit probably a bit too annoying to work out. So it's easier, as far as I'm concerned, just to have the insurance and, and take some vitamin D. Mm -hmm. well, and that, this is particularly important uh, with COVID going around because um, apparently vitamin D is, is strongly protect, protective for infectious uh, diseases as well. Um, so, you know, I've had COVID once and uh, that ironically was when our vitamin D supplement had, had run out and we couldn't get it. Mm -hmm. um, now we're back on it. We, we've not had any problems. You know, purely anecdotal evidence, but um, yeah, it, it seems to be important for that as well. So you wrote a book, obviously, and you said you did some tapes, audio programs. The the book I think is We Are Omnivores. I think you can still people can still get it online. And when did you write? Yeah, it's that? called right. So it's called Are Humans Omnivores? Um, this, I think I wrote the second edition or published the second edition in 2008. Um, I think there was a first edition a year or two before that. So um, the idea was, and I, this came from Laurie Forty. He was critical of the idea we're omnivores. And he, he wanted to, to sort of um, make it scientific. Um, so he compared us to chimpanzees. As it turns out, this isn't actually correct. Uh, chimpanzees are uh, actually omnivorous. Um, and I explained that, um, I think I explained it in the book and the video. Um, so they're actually not a good comparison. And I discovered this after reading um, some scientific literature, uh, which explains in detail why chimpanzees are omnivores. And it, it's not just a dietary habit kind of thing. They physically have the teeth uh, for consuming meat, um, so they're they're you know rather like more like dogs. They are actually adapted to meat eating. Uh, this was a bit of a surprise. Uh, Laurie hadn't been, I think, particularly maybe he just hadn't looked at this literature, but he hadn't been very studious. And I, I decided to be very studious about this, and and I read a whole lot of books, um, scores of of papers I got from the library, scientific papers. So I really went to the primary literature to, to research, to write this book and make it scientifically credible. Um, and I continue this research to this day. You know, I'm always discovering new bits and pieces. Um, and when I had enough research, I thought, okay, I'm gonna make the research video. Um, and that, that also, I think I call that Are Humans Omnivores? Uh, but it's part of a, a bigger project, um, which I've, I've published uh, it's called uh, www.weareherbivores.com, which is the website. And the idea there is to, to actually make a more publicly accessible program about this whole topic, uh, exploring uh, are we omnivores? Sure. And so I really wanted to take, I wanted to take the scientific credibility and build it up and up and up. So 
talking about chimpanzees for a moment, my understanding is that chimpanzees do eat meat and primates do eat meat. Um, but it's a relatively small part of their diet, is it not? Yes. So um, if you look at my video, you'll find there's like a triangle there. So most primates will specialize in two, but not three of the kinds of, of, of food that primates eat. So it'll, they'll either eat mostly fruit and vegetation, um, and then maybe a little bit of animal matter, so the odd insect or two, something like this, or they'll eat mostly fruit and animal matter and only a little bit of vegetation, or they'll fit in the last category, which is mostly vegetation and animal matter, but not a whole lot of fruit. So they'll all tend to fall mm -hmm. um, in one of the three corners. Um, and there's really no primates that fall bang in the middle, the circle bit, which I draw, which is truly omnivorous. They'll eat, eat any amount or they'll eat a lot of everything. There aren't really any uh, omnivores in that kind of, yeah. they'll eat anything. It's usually, it's usually two, two main things plus a little bit of a, of a third. That's how they'll, that's their, the diet of primates. But... Yeah. Um, the, the other great apes are basically derived species. So uh, our ancestors are more primitive. Um, we go back a longer way in our evolutionary history um, from where we are today than the other great apes. The other great apes went through a whole lot of more evolution after us. And during that evolution, they became more omnivorous. And you can see that in you can see that in the dentition of all of the other great apes, uh, with the exception of the gorilla, which became more herbivorous. All right. I, I, I also thought that chimps, a lot of their eating is dependent on their environment. And maybe that's the case with primates as well as like if there's scarce fruit, then they will eat more of other things if they're and and like I don't know what what is is it is it quite environment based depending on where where they're at where the forest is and it is yeah so all of the all of the all of the great apes prefer to eat fruit primarily whether it's a gorilla chimpanzee um, bonobo or, or um, orangutan they they all like fruit and they will prefer that um, but they also will eat vegetation. And they will also eat animal matter when they can get it. Um, but you're right; they don't eat a lot of animal animal matter typically. Um, but it's it's obviously been important enough to their diet for them to get the the teeth and jaws for it. Um, and and likewise for the gorilla, vegetation's off obviously been an important part of the gorilla's evolutionary history because it it's it's uh, adapted to to vegetation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it it is environmentally driven. Yeah. Uh, animals have to make the best of the particular eco niche that mm. they find themselves yeah. in. They have to try and survive with what's most available in their geographic location. So and that will have a selective pressure on the the gene pool. So I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking that fruit is the preference, but can't always get it. Can't always get access to it, and so on. I'm also wondering if that means that the, the the primates are kind of competing for who can 
guard the fruit or who can guard the territory or who can get access to the fruit to area oh yeah they're very territorial yeah yeah so basically primates um they will want to compete for two things food and the best food and the best mates yeah and yeah you're right they're very territorial so the 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 well, they've got different strategies, but chimpanzees, our closest relevant, uh, relatives, are very territorial. So um, they're defending their mating opportunities and their their feeding opportunities, basically, mm-hmm. because you know that's survival for them. Yeah, and so where do humans fit in? Because obviously, human beings are. Di- I mean, I know we're similar, but we're also different, and we don't have hair typically or a lot of hair on the outside of our body we walk upright most of the time um we're not so dependent on living in trees we're use tools and so on we have our language is more developed there's a lot of differences of course with humans and where does that fit in because one of my questions was did we become did we get more did we evolve in that way because of more access to fruit were we able to specialize in that? Were we able to uh, maximize our territory? Because humans are the best, at, I would say, at um, cultivating or managing our territory of all the animals, I guess. Um, hmm. But how do we fit in? Or what do you see as where humans were originally? And what would our ancestors have been doing? And when did that all change? Right. So for most of... Uh, I th- I forget the timeline exactly, but I think about 36 million years ago, um, the Earth went through a big change. I could be wrong. It could be 3 million. I'm not sure on the timeline. I apologize for that one. But up until that point, um, you, didn't have the, you didn't have a season. So things were like summary all year. Um, so that you would have had, and, and you kind of still do have this to some extent in Thailand. You yeah. can get fruit. You can get fruit throughout the year. Yep. Now, yeah. eventually, like I say, whether I think it may be 3.6 million years ago, uh, this stops and we start to develop this idea of seasons and, and climates uh, changing uh, seasonally. And then that creates a problem for fruiting trees. Um, and now you, you start to get a shortage of, of, of highly energy and nutritious food uh, available all year round. Now, there's two things you can do when that happens and the fruit's gone. One is you can start killing and eating animals. And the other is you can start eating more plant matter, more vegetation, more roots, more stems, stuff like that. And that's, that's the pathway the other great apes seem to have taken. So the gorilla's gone for the plants um, and the other great apes have gone for, for more insects and, and meat in order to survive the the loss of the fruit supply. Humans, though, uh, somehow we've managed to outwit everything else. And we, our adaptation is the big brain, or it's actually not big. There's a whole story to that. And I've done an article about that, too. Um, but we have we've become more intelligent. Um, and of course, we've, we're doing the similar things to the other chimpanzees, but we've evolved technology. Um, so we can cook, um, we can process, um, we can travel, and we can do agriculture as well. We figured out how we can 
we can grow different varieties of things to be, be hardier. Um, so we figured out all these other uh, challenge, uh, results or, or coping strategies for the shortage of the fruit. Excellent, yeah. And I guess um, what, what, what is, you, you mentioned the brain there, because I'm, I mean, I'm under the impression that humans had a bigger brain or a more evolved brain than the other apes or other animals. So what's the, the truth there and, and why would our brain have developed like that? Well, the, yeah, there's a strange thing. Um, there's, there's actually a book about this, um, which I think I do reference in, in my material somewhere. Uh, but basically, our, our brains grow at exactly the same rate as, say, the brain of a pig. Um, so we're not unusual in our, if you like, our brain development process. Um, there's nothing, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't require a special amount of nutrients or anything like that. The way our brains are bigger in proportion to everything else is actually because the rest of our body is kind of scrawny and weak. So our arms and our torso is kind of pathetic, basically. It's like the brain is just growing normally on the normal trajectory, but our, our body, and particularly when, our, when we're born, our legs are kind of scrawny. Mm. Um, so our legs, if you were to plot like a chart with like head, body, legs on it, it would be different to the other um, kind of mammals. So, and it's not just the bit, the, the head grows faster kind of thing. The head head grows the same. Yeah. It's the, it's the body and the legs are doing funny things. They're not normal. Right. Most other animal, mammals have a much bigger body on them or they might have bigger legs or they might have, have we have big kind of have big legs and scrawny arms and a scrawny torso. Um, and the, it, there's actually a name for it, it's called the Chihuahua Fallacy, uh, which is quite interesting, and that, that's in this book. Um, and so when you understand that, um, there's actually not too much that's exceptional about our, head, our brain size. It just happens that it grows for longer, so it takes longer to fully grow. Um, so that's how it gets bigger. I mean, what I'm saying is the how it gets bigger is important yeah. to understand. The details are important. And why, what, so would you be in the camp of thinking that the reason that humans um, have evolved in a different way to other apes is to do with cooking food, to do with fruit, to do with meat, or a combination of these things, or you're, we're not that exceptional, or what's your way of looking at that? Yeah, I think it's to do, the, it's all rooted in bipedalism. Um, so at some point in our natural history, um, we, we started to, to become fruit pickers. Um, and well, I mean, I don't know the details, not something I looked into hugely, so I'm kind of making this up a bit on the moment, but it's, it's my thoughts on it. Um, picking fruit's quite efficient. Uh, so um, we were probably, our niche probably we weren't so much the tree climbers so our ancestors um were were more sort of like browsers so they wandered around plucking fruit and picking it uh with their upper body now that means um we because we don't have to climb trees we're we're not naturally built like arnie yes you know all of that uh, bodybuilder craziness it's all by by drugs it's yeah. a drug trip um, we're not supposed to have big, strong upper bodies 
uh, our evolution is, is weak torso, weak arms. Uh, it's an efficiency to save energy. Yeah. Um, so consequently, we save energy by having this weak body and arms. Um, and we put the big bit is our legs. Uh, so we're, we're good at running and, and so forth. We're not particularly bad at it. Um, so we've, we've got that efficiency. And it's just a niche that we had um, because... You know, niches are great because then you stop competing with other things. Um, so while the other primates are all climbing up in trees and howling at each other because they all want to get to the fruit and the leaves and the trees, um, we humans were out there plucking our fruits. And I guess there were other kinds of hominids around maybe that were similar to us. There might not have been. We might have been a unique line of evolution. But likely there were other hominoids of a similar nature to us and either we killed and ate them or we outcompeted them or whatever in the ancient, you know, dusts of time, yeah. um, we came, we, we survived and came forwards. Um, but the other thing that comes with that bipedalism is we've got these hands and they with the thumbs on them for plucking the fruits and they're kind of useful. Not only can you pluck fruits with them, you can do other things like you could make spears, um, you could you could make implements to dig the ground. So we naturally got this ability to make tools uh, a little bit more easily than other yeah. other creatures because we're we're fruit pickers. We're fruit specialists. We're, we've got the, the hands for picking the fruit. Yeah. It's, a, it's yeah. a specialization. Uh, another thing that I remember you actually talking about and giving some presentations on uh, Connor's event and maybe at the UK festival as well. I think you were interested. I don't know if this is something you're interested in at the moment, but um, in like polyamorous kind of lifestyle and maybe a, or a, maybe alternative relationships or I'm not sure what you would label it. And yeah, I, I what's how does that all fit in with with everything? And what's your thoughts on that now? And what even is that? I suppose. Well, yeah, I, there's two sides to this. So when I was with Sophie, we were, were much along the polyamory line. We'd read the same book about polyamory or about um, uh, trying trying to, to make it scientific. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but I think it's called something like um, Love at Dawn, something like that. Sex uh, it's at quite dawn? well known. Sex at Dawn? Sorry? Sex at, Sex at dawn. dawn. That's it. That could be it, yeah. Uh, and I read that and I was quite influenced by that. It seemed to make sense. Um, and and look, kind of purely from a logical perspective, if you just think about it for, as a philosopher, um, I'm completely on board with polyamory. Uh, I don't see why. Why should we limit our love and sex life to one person? It doesn't really make any sense if you look at it philosophically. Right. And I have no problems still to this day, no problems with people being polyamorous. If that's for them and it works, that's fine. Uh, but eventually somebody published a, a very detailed rebuttal to what was it, Sex at Dawn, uh, called Sex at Dusk, and it completely pulls it to pieces. Um, and and the, the reality is uh, that essentially, uh, biologically, we are not really geared up for polyamory. It's or uh, it's more more along the lines that we're geared up um, in a somewhat horrible way. <laughs> I'll say nature is horrible, but we are um, 
we want to be monogamous, but have a bit on the side. That's, that's right. It, it's two strategies, two strategies. So the best, the, the strat, one strategy that's very successful is to be pair bonded to one person for long enough to produce a child. And that, that very successfully produces a child that can then go on to have more children. Right. Right. Yeah. So that's that's like the, that's 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 plan A. That's strategy A of our biology. Uh, meet somebody, stay with them and and knock out some probably just one or two children with them. Now, at the same time, um, from again, purely biologically, it makes complete sense. If somebody else makes themselves available, well, hey, you know, why not uh, have a bit of fun with them and knock off a few more children on the periphery? But but maybe you don't look after them, so that's that's the sort of the net where the natural histories come from. Um, you know, it's it's have your cake and eat it, as it were, in the in the evolutionary sense, um, and that completely makes sense. Um, but it, of course, it leads to this tension where you naturally don't want your partner um, being with somebody else. So we have this thing called jealousy. Um, which, of course, is completely adaptive. It's a biological programming to stop your partner from making babies with somebody else. So we have all this circuitry, which I think is perfectly natural and healthy uh, and adaptive, um, which basically primes us to be monogamous, but, but not religiously perfectly monogamous. Um, we still have plan, plan B is still in our minds. Um, and there's difference between the sexes as well. Uh, for men, uh, like they say, men are, men are more like dogs, women are more like cats. Um, so there's a, there's, our psychologies are fundamentally wired up differently based on these biological game plans for reproduction. Um, but polyamory in theory is, is you make all of this conscious and you, you work with it uh, consciously. Yeah, so I, I, I know someone that is a counselor for many years and he he um sort of practices or preaches polyamory and he sort of says that when he would counsel people that many of them if if he was to say to them did you ever cheat on your partner in in their, in their marriage and he said that many people had you know and i don't i don't know if that's always the case but many people had and he was saying, well, it was basically just that, but being honest about it, right? Um, but I, I know that, I guess that you might have influenced, you might have been a bit of an influence on Connor and he, him and Brittany uh, did a lot with videos on polyamory and stuff like that and uh, maybe still do, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I think they're still doing that, yeah. I haven't checked into them super recently, yeah. but yeah, I think that's still part of their lifestyle and they promote that. And I've I've seen that around the raw food scene. It's sometimes been a part of fruit festivals and things. Like not not a huge, not like the main part, but like a, a fringe part of it. And it's not really been attractive to me as a as a as a concept. Uh, but I always do question, like, if I was in the position where I just had this abundance of beautiful women always throwing themselves at me, like it would maybe it would be hard. Maybe you would be all of a sudden. All of a sudden, you'd be like, "Yeah, this is a great idea," you know. <laughs> and I don't know if it's, it's, some, it's something that, for certain people in certain situations, is maybe uh, works for them, and then 
for other people, sometimes their partner might not be so happy about it or whatever. I, I don't I don't know, but what's what's been your experience with all that? Have you um, is it basically the jealousy? I suppose is the difficult thing to deal with. Right. So so what I would say is there's two kinds of jealousy. There's a natural, adaptive kind of jealousy, which is is our nature. We we don't really want our partners to be with somebody else. Um, now you can challenge whether that's natural because of course there's people out there will say no no I'm really happy when my girlfriend goes and sees somebody else now I, I don't know about whether I necessarily believe that it's not been my experience um, but I, you know maybe there are people like that and I've met people that will say and talk about that and I think you have to at least accept that there might be that kind of person out there genuinely um, that has no problem I think they're the exception, um, yeah. and they might be a bit. They might be a bit unusual. <laughs> um, yeah, I think they probably are. Um, so I don't think those exceptions really change the rule book. Um, but I don't want to get into talking about you know what's normal and stuff like that because that that gets into some subjective value judgments. Um, and I, you know, again. Uh, our biology is not a hundred percent. We're not. We're not just the genes that make us. Um, our upbringing, our experience, um, the way we develop in the womb, blah blah blah. These yeah. are all going to make us different uh, and create people. That's one of the great things about us humans is we're not all the same. We're, we're huge. There's a huge variety of different people out there. So there's nothing that you can really put into a box and say, well, this is a natural human. This is the natural human way. It's not, you know, it's, clearly it's much more complex than that. Um, so, what do you think? About, what do you think about generally the state of kind of modern uh, dating relationships between men and women, particularly in the West, I suppose, where you have a situation where uh, all of a sudden or maybe for the first time in history, for example, there's a number of different factors that are different now, which is at least for the time that we've been alive, um, yourself, myself, people of our, of my generation, you're maybe slightly older than me, people older than you even, never went to war. You know, life wasn't particularly hard. You you survived yeah. childhood quite easily. Um, and economically like the machines and everything came around so physical brute strength uh, hasn't been as important a thing anymore in terms of being a part of uh, the workplace and economics and all that so um, we've got a different system and women can be part of that system more easily and more jobs available for 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 them and all these things have kind of shifted and then medical advances and and birth control and and then religions kind of faded a little bit in, in terms of its influence on how people interact and it's led to a more free open way of relating and and yeah you make their own choices and people are sort of delaying marriage or commitment more and and even the statistics that there's a lot of men who aren't establishing relationships or struggling with that and haven't and aren't having sex mm -hmm. later on and all these things and incels yeah people are more promiscuous probably or some people are and women yeah. are more promiscuous and, and less women have had children now this is in the west of course um so there's all these things going on i don't know if it's necessarily leading to people having more 
necessarily more happiness or whatever. I don't know exactly, or better relationships necessarily. But do you have any opinion on all of that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, I guess we're kind of champions of our own success and, and victims of it as well. Um, I mean, you know, I would if I had to label myself politically, it would be something like libertarian or anarchist or something like this. So, you know, I think people belong to themselves and should be able to to live the life that they want to live um, as long as they don't harm others. So, you know, that, yeah. that's my that's my sort of philosophical principle around ethics and, and living. But at the same time, you know, with responsibility, with with uh, um, you know, with liberty and freedom of choice, it comes the responsibility for for what the outcomes are going to be. Um, and I think it's easy to be naive about what our choices are and forget the biology. And um, the biology is actually very important um, and and has consequences. Um, so, for example, you know, I've had some of my children probably a bit. Well, most of them older than I should have done uh, and likewise for my girlfriends uh, it's optimal to have children when you're in your 20s when you start to get into your 30s then the chance of you producing a, a genetically damaged offspring uh, you know it starts to go up and up and up and and you can ask the question is it really ethical to to take that risk with your life and with the life of another person shouldn't yeah. you be Ethically, ethically, shouldn't you try and have the children in your twenties or whatever yeah. when it's when yeah. it's optimal for the health of the child? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's an interesting question. But I mean, there's all sorts of trade-offs you could get into when you start to dig into these things. Um, children of older parents, okay, they might be more likely to be autistic, but then they're also more likely to to benefit from from a better income of the parents and blah blah blah. So the whole thing is if really very complicated and i don't know that you can try and distill out some sort of uh, uh simple rules around it but um i think if you can try and bear nature in mind and of course take into account what's what's going on in the present and how things are now um that's that's the best sort of general approach to it mm -hmm. um but yeah it is it is concerning um when you look at um, historically, of course, you couldn't go on to whatever dating platform and find, you know, uh, you know, 10 really sexy guys, the top 10 sexy guys and go and date and have a relationship with them. You know, women didn't have that opportunity. It was the guy next door or the guy on the other side of the village. And that was pretty much it for most of our history. Um, so on the one side, like we're we're mixing things up a bit more, more which is probably a good thing. We're we're less inbred, right? Um, but um, you know, it has downsides as well because when men can't get women, when women can't get men, there's going to be some disappointment. There's there's unhappiness uh, for men. This can lead to alienation, social alienation. So men can be more violent. When they can't get girlfriends they or they could be more depressed so we we can get this wave of depression uh, and then likewise for for women if they they maybe if they don't get the long-term partner that they wanted then they can be a bit depressed um, so there's a whole load of complications that come out of this great great freedom and, and choice that we have today as well um, but at the end of the day i think we, we have to follow who we are as individuals and um, 
And I think, yeah, it comes back to this kind of Buddhist thing of there's going to be suffering. There's going to be, yeah. it's a pile of life. We can't get rid of it. Um, but, you know, if we can, we want to be conscious of the suffering that we might cause ourselves and try and avoid that. You know, be smart, as, as smart as you can. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, just based on my understanding of the biology now, um, I'm kind of more into promoting monogamous relationships. Okay, if you can do some polyamory, that's fine. But if you're going to have children, then you've probably got to do much more careful calculations how you do that to actually make it work and, and give the ch children the best uh, opportunity. So you, you've got to take all of these different inputs into account. Yeah. Well, let's, let's kind of go into the, some of your arguments, I guess, for are, are humans omnivores or we are herbivores? What are the main, the, what, what's the way that you look at that and, and how do you uh, present that argument to someone? Right, so there's, there's some steps um, which I outline in the video. So we start with this idea, um, like if you think um, this is from Kant, so you have an, an analytical proposition is something like this. Animals that consume animal and plant matter are omnivores. So that's purely like a text descriptive thing of we give this label to this. Mm -hmm. Then you have the synthetic proposition, which is humans are omnivores because humans consume animal and plant matter. So that syn synthetic proposition has like a real world observation uh, tied to it. So we can check it um, and prove it by looking at the real world. So when we say humans are omnivores, that's one of these uh, synthetic propositions. Um, and we could accept, so the next step is to, if we accept that humans are omnivores because we do eat plant and animal matter, well, um, then the, the problem with, with that is it's a naive definition, as I point out in my video. Um, uh, so like cats will consume grass, for example, um, and goats will consume insects because when they're eating grass, there's insects on the grass. And you could even take it to an even more absurd degree, like pollen is flying around in the air everywhere. So every carnivore, when it eats, is eating some pollen. And similarly, there's microscopic insects in the air, on the ground, everywhere, contaminating all our food. So if we take that naive definition of omnivore, then everything's an omnivore. So of course, that, that's completely meaningless. And that just begs the next question, well, what kind of omnivores are we? Are we the mostly herbivorous kind of omnivore or the mostly carnivorous or the mostly fruit-eating one? So that, that naive, naive definition doesn't really help us at all. Um, so we have to get into the next step in the thinking, which is having some quantitative criteria so, okay, a little bit of animal matter doesn't change you from being a herbivore to being an omnivore, and a little bit of uh, vegetation doesn't change you from being a carnivore into an omnivore. So we have to have some like separation of the categories. They're still fuzzy, they still overlap, but we've got to have some kind of criteria to separate. So the next step in the thinking after that was the what I already explained to you. We look at the primates and we see that they eat one of three different kinds of diet. It's, it's fruit, or it's animals, or it's um, vegetation. 
and it will be one of the two of them. So then it becomes, what are we? Are we fruit and vegetation plus minimal animal? Or we fruit and animal plus minimal vegetation, etc. Um, then, then we develop the idea to the next step, which is we we recognise um, that animals uh, adjust their behaviour in order to to survive in the short term. So, for example, there used to be a bear in London Zoo, and people used to throw a lot of candy into its cage or confection. Uh, and the bear would eat this stuff because it's food, it, it, it's edible, it's food, it nourishes it. But eventually, of course, the bear gets catastrophically ill from eating candy or confection, um, and the zoo has to 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 uh, put the animal down. Um, well, and of course, now you see signs in the zoo which say, don't feed the animals. Right. So that's the next bit of the equation. Uh, realizing that animals and what they eat are not necessarily adaptive uh, to their to their biological makeup. So that brings us to the final step in the thinking, right, we know all of the preceding information, what we need to do is to figure out what we're adapted to. And that uh, has a particular kind of science um, that it's about called comparative biology. So then we can look for the different biological traits that distinguish the different animals, carnivore, omnivore, herbivore, roughly speaking, and of course, frugivore, which is a particular kind of, of specialist herbivore. Um, and once we've got that uh, figured out, then we can go away and look at the literature and we can find comparative biology for the different kind of animals that feed different ways and then we can find well which categories do we do we tick the box in and that's uh this is completely what my research video is about on on youtube and that's that's uh, also called our humans omnivores and uh, in that i i go through the steps which i've just mentioned uh, of of working out the thinking first of how we should solve this problem uh, and then I actually go through the various bits and pieces of science where you've got uh, herbivore, omnivore, carnivore data available. Um, and I say, well, what's what's true for humans? Excellent. And then when you do that process, you find consistently that we don't fit uh, into the omnivore category. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's where can people find out more about this and if they want to follow you if you've got any where where should they go to get that information and so on right so all of the scientific stuff and the link to the video are on the weareherbivores.com website so and i've also uh, got citations of all the scientific information that i use in the research video um, much of which I also mentioned in the book before, and I think there's a link to that as well. Um, so that's all there. And, you know, I continue to, to follow the scientific literature and, and add things to the website, you know, as I go. Um, but pretty much at the moment, I would say that, that the theory is, is very robust. Um, but as I, you know, as I point out, these categories are fuzzy. And, um, you know, we're not talking, when we say herbivore, that means plant-based it doesn't mean vegan 
for example. So there is a, there is a difference, um, and that's important uh, to point out um, because we get into this whole thing of vitamin B12 and stuff like that uh, that, that always complicates an otherwise quite simple message. Excellent, John. So before we finish off today, is there anything else you want to share with us? Well, yeah, I'll just say, um, you know, the, the idea of the project next is to, to develop a documentary to make this bigger and make this more consumable because, you know, people don't really want to watch science videos at the end of the day. The number of people that will watch those kind of things is, is vanishingly small um, because it, it's dry and uh, <laughs> not fun. Um, so I'd like to make the documentary. So if anyone wants to help me on that or contribute to that uh, financially or skill-wise, um, it wouldn't be a big thing to do, I don't think. Um, but, you know, I'm told by other documentary makers that it is. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's what I'd like to finish with a request. And, uh, yeah, if anyone wants to contribute and make this happen, that would be great because we want to popularise the the idea and challenge this uh, myth and uh, you know pe people will justify their dietary choices through the most uh, irrational and shallow of, of sort of apologistic uh, reasons and if we can keep pushing keep pushing against that you know the vegan thing has the ethical argument well let's also give the scientifically robust argument as well so that there's no no corners left uncovered basically Excellent, John. Well, thank you very much for joining me today. And I encourage everyone to go and check out uh, John's information. And for all of you watching and listening, thank you for that. And feel free to share this with other people that might find this interesting. Feel free to comment below, rate the video, um, give us a like, subscribe to the channel and, and so on. And if you want to learn more about this lifestyle, you can go to fruitfest.co.uk. The UK Fruit Fest is uh, still happening each year and will happen in July 2023 from the 21st to the 28th of July. And you're very welcome to check that information out and see if that might be for you. We also have an online group on Friday nights where we have speakers and discussion on raw food, raw vegan <coughs> related topics. And you'll find all that information if you join um, the newsletter, go to the website fruitfest.co.uk or go to the link below this video and you should be able to find more information about that. Thank you very much for watching and listening, everyone. And John, I'll speak to you again another time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sean. It's been a pleasure. And we'll see you on the next episode of the Love Fruit Podcast. Thank you very much, everyone.